living in Topeka, Kansas. She had to ride a bus five miles to school, even though there was a nice school a few blocks from her house. But the school was white and Brown was black. A gifted lawyer named Thurgood Marshall argued that refusing her admission because of her race violated the 14th Amendment. And on May 17, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed in the landmark decision Brown v. Board of Education. David S. Salisbury, director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom, and Casey Lartigue, a former policy analyst at the center and now a senior partner at Fight for Children, have collaborated on a brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, and available online at CatoStore.org. It's titled, Educational Freedom in Urban America, 50 Years After Brown v. Board. And there are guests on this edition of the Roundtable. Welcome, and uh, thank you for coming. And congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. Let's start out um, on the book. Um, David Salisbury, what would be the main point of your book, if you had to summarize it? Well, as you said, May 17th is the 50th anniversary of this historic Supreme Court decision that outlawed forced segregation in public schools. Uh, We wanted to take a look at the status of public school education, particularly for children living in urban areas. And And when you look at this, you find a couple of interesting things. One, you find that today public schools are still quite highly segregated, and private schools are more racially integrated in most communities than the public schools are. So um, we are, you also find that children living in urban centers are the most disadvantaged in terms of being uh, uh, not being served well by the public schools that they attend. And so we wanted to highlight this and look at what some of the possible solutions would be. Oh, you're saying that private schools are actually more integrated than public schools? That's, that's right. One of the chapters in the book uh, looks at Atlanta public and private schools and finds, for example, that 90% of the city's pr- public schools have student bodies that are more than 90% minority, uh, whereas only 41%, uh, excuse me, oh, 60% of the private schools have student bodies that are so highly uh, racially segregated. So it's the private schools that have a more diverse mixture of uh, of races in their classrooms. The same thing is true in other major cities in uh, uh, Los Angeles, New York City, Washington, D.C. The rate of minority enrollment in those schools is very high in the 90 percent, 80 percent range. Uh, Casey Lartigue, was the point of Brown to eliminate all segregation or was it just mandatory segregation? Okay, I think it's just mandatory segregation. I think that we need to keep our focus on the end goal. I don't think we're just after integrated schools. I think the point is to go after good schools. So we need to focus, as they should have after Brown, less on color and more on education. Now, I see integration as one of those non-academic factors that, you know, I think those of us who support school choice, we have to talk about it just because of some of the critics out there. But if a church ends up 100% black or white, that's fine with me, the same with the school. But I'm opposed, downright, downright hostile, in fact, to government-enforced segregation. And that's actually why I think the Brown decision should have been about two sentences long. The first sentence, you can't set up public institutions that segregate people. And the second one, second sentence should have been, have a nice day, let's have an anniversary, and we can talk about this the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. When we talk about school choice today, they were talking about it back then, but is it, does it mean the same thing, or has the, has the meaning changed over time? Well, it has changed over time, and some of the opponents of school choice today will bring up 
the fact that following the Brown decision, some of the southern states instituted policies that gave tuition awards to students to allow white students to attend white schools as a way to circumvent the Brown decision. Uh, because of that, some of the opponents of vouchers, as I say, uh, bring this up as somehow suggesting that the modern-day school choice movement uh, is based in the same kind of, of thinking and that re really nothing could be further from the truth. Today, school choice is really about helping kids, mostly minority kids, who are stuck in failing inner-city private schools to go to better, excuse me, to who are stuck in failing inner-city public schools to go to better private schools. No, Dave, Dave is exactly right, and it's really ridiculous when people try to compare the two different movements. It's kind of like saying that lightning and lightning bug are the same thing just because lightning is in both words. I mean, if you look back at that time, train companies, bus companies, car companies discriminated against blacks. I don't hear people saying today that blacks should walk to work. Um, it's the same thing with universities and colleges. They discriminated against blacks, but we don't have people saying today that blacks should avoid going to school. We really should not hold ourselves hostages to the past, kind of giving segregationists some power from the grave. And, and that's one reason I think the chapter in the book by Gerard Robinson is really important, because he highlights the difference between the movement today is kind of what Dave just talked about. Also, today, what we have is a situation where blacks and also Hispanics suffer disproportionately from a failing public school system. Uh, for example, today, 45% of black and 47% of Hispanic students drop out of public high schools, whereas uh, only 24% of whites uh, drop out. And only 5% of black and 10% of Hispanic fourth graders reach the, profession, the proficient level on the math portion of the National Assessment of Educational prog Progress compared to 33% of whites that reach that level. So there still is a large performance gap between black and white students, and it's the black and Hispanic students who are stuck in these inner city public schools that suffer from a failing public education system. The condition of public schools in a lot of urban areas is a disaster. Illiteracy in those areas is really a scandal. There are structural problems with, with politicians and school board presidents who have just neglected the system. But there are also a lot of cultural issues, especially a lot of anti-intellectualism in a lot of urban areas. So there are really a lot of challenges that uh, we do confront. Now, I say in some cases, parents would actually be better off if they just kept their kids at home hmm. compared to sending them to a lot of the unsafe schools with lousy teachers. We have examples of school choice in uh, Cleveland and uh, Florida and in Washington. Um, what's happening in those places? Last October, I went on a fact-finding trip to see the, uh, more about the Milwaukee Voucher Program, and I spent about three days there. And I'll tell you, I was hearing from the principals, teachers, and others who say that, first of all, having that voucher program has put so much pressure on the public schools because they realize that they won't have the kids delivered to their door by the truant officer. You have some, you've had some other changes in Milwaukee, such as now you have principals going door to door during the summers telling parents, please don't give up on the public schools, give us a chance. Here are some of the changes that we're making. Parents now are getting letters when, they, when their kids turn four years old. They're now getting letters from their Milwaukee public schools saying, you know, here's our school, come and check it out. So you've had a lot of changes 
that have put pressure on the public school system and then within the private school system, as Dave mentioned, you've had a lot of positive academic results. I think it's true that uh, evaluators tend to focus a lot on achievement tests to measure how effective school choice programs are. But the other, probably more important criteria is just whether the parents are satisfied and what they think about the new school that their child is attending. And on those measures, school choice programs are overwhelmingly positive. Even in instances where there haven't been dramatic academic achievement, parental satisfaction measures are extremely high. Parents tend to like the new private school that they've chosen for themselves better than they liked the public school where their child was attending. And this is, again, very consistent across the different school choice programs. Let's talk about vouchers now for a minute. Walk me through how a voucher works. Well, a voucher is uh, simply a, a piece of paper or a check that parents receive that they can endorse over to the private school of their choice and use the dollars that are being used currently for their child in the public school at a private school instead. What effect will taking vouchers have on the independence of private schools, Casey? Right. Well, that's one of the cases that we really have to consider two different points. On the one hand, we do have tax dollars involved. So we can't just kind of throw the dollars there and not try to check to see how things are going. But on the other hand, we have to make sure that the opponents don't use vouchers or um, regulations to then strangle the private schools and to harm their independence. So the focus needs to remain on, let's look at it like this. The private schools are doing us a favor. They are educating a lot of kids that the public school system cannot educate. So let's not try to make their jobs more difficult. Let's just give them more freedom and allow them to go ahead and do that job. Fortunately, fortunately, the D.C. program is pretty good in terms of uh, lack of regulations that are being placed on private schools. Private schools in the D.C. program will be free to uh, have their own admissions criteria or follow their own admissions criteria and uh, do other things as they have, have historically done, which is good. Unfortunately, in other states, we see state legislators, state legislatures uh, moving toward to enact additional regulations on private schools, and that is something that uh, I think we need to be very concerned about. In Florida, for example, the Senate just uh, yesterday, I think, passed some provisions that would require private schools to fill out additional forms, their students to take certain tests, and uh, to do other things that they haven't had to do before. So this is something that we need to be seriously concerned about. Yeah, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Well, how would that translate um as far as a religious school is, is concerned? Because we see you know, there are certain speech regulations in places even like Canada and, and in, um, in parts of Europe that might conflict with a particular denomination's teaching. Um, Casey, is that a concern? Yeah, that is. And in fact, that's one thing that was talked about quite a bit in the discussions about the D.C. voucher program. They did their best to bring in the Catholic school leaders into all of the conversations so that their views would be heard and if that when people were going into the back room that they wouldn't forget that the private schools have a particular mission and that they should allow them to fulfill that. Um, David, how much government regulation is required? Is any and, and how much? Well, I think the case can be made and ought to be made that governments ought to let private schools alone and let the market and the consumers be the regulatory force over over private schools. Having private schools directly accountable to their consumers is a much more powerful way of increasing quality or assuring quality and satisfaction and achievement than is having private schools fill out reports that go to government bureaucrats. 
So I hope that we can continue to make a strong case for kind of a hands-off approach when it comes to private schools and trusting parents to make good decisions and for the power of, uh, of the market to, uh, to maintain quality. No Child Left Behind has no shortage of critics who point out all kinds of problems. Are the problems real or are the criticisms real or is it just politics and money? Well, I think in some regard the criticisms are political. The mo most of the criticisms come from the teacher unions and from state legislatures or public school or the public school establishment who feel like they're not getting enough money to cover the costs and they want more federal money. They're not really objecting so much to the provisions. Other criticisms are technical in terms of the way that student achievement is measured. There may be some uh, technical problems in some aspects with that. Our, critic our criticism of the No Child Left Behind Act is more constitutional. That is that we don't feel that the federal government really should uh, have a role in dictating federal, uh, in dictating education policy. That's really a role for the states and the local communities under the Constitution. And so we think that uh, students and families would be better served if the federal government did less and left education exclusively to the states. Right. You know, No Child Left Behind is a piece of public legislation, and when you put the word public on something, then everyone feels like they can give their opinion. So I think it's pretty natural that you do have a lot of critics. Now, the NEA in particular, they have drawn up this list of about 55 to 60 technical problems that they want changed within no, no, no Child Left Behind. How much of it is real, I don't know. A lot of it just seems that they want to just kind of put a stick in the spokes of the tire and try to stop yeah. it from moving. Tie it down with a thousand threads. Yeah. Right. Any um, particular pitfalls, things that uh, supporters of vouchers and people implementing voucher programs should be careful of? Well, you know, I think one concern is that it's both a good and a bad thing. A lot of us would like to see more school choice programs blossoming across the country. But I think first we have to make sure that the programs that are actually in existence, that they do receive more support because they are getting constant attacks. So what happens is that we win the battle and then we kind of go home and figure, okay, hey, this is going to be easy now. And then the opponents challenge every single part. Even now in Milwaukee and in D.C. and in Florida, they're trying to find problems with the program to overturn it. Even at this late date in Milwaukee, 13 years, 14 years after the program was enacted, in D.C., I've already heard that they're trying to find ways to, to find some technical problems. So I'd say that we need to embrace the programs that are already out there. Private funders obviously need to come on through with, with more support for the programs. I think another thing that we need to watch for in the future is to make sure that as we enact additional programs that we we do it, we do them well and we do them better and we support only school choice programs that are really designed well and provide additional levels of educational freedom for parents. To date we have a number of school choice programs in place but none of them really have are large enough are universal enough to really create the positive market effects that people like Milton Friedman talk about. If we want to do that and if we want to see the real positive effects of school choice, we'll have to have bigger and better school choice programs that are free of regulation and involve uh, more children, not just uh, a few children in one particular city or in one particular segment of the population. Where would you like us to be 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? Uh, let's just say where do you want us to be 100 years after Brown v. Board? In terms of what we'd like to see in the future, I think that uh, 
uh, we'll, we'll like to see a couple things. One, in terms of the path to get there, some states, some states will try voucher programs, and I think we will see voucher programs that are designed better than the, some of the ones we have so far. Other states will use tuition tax credits, and I think there are some uh, good reasons why tuition tax credits may have some advantages. Uh, and that will depend on the state and their, their constitution and their, their, their local politics. But I think what it, whichever road a state goes down, eventually would like to get to a point where there's less government involvement in education overall. And uh, someday I think we will see whether parents are, are getting tax credits for sending their children to private schools or vouchers. We'll have a larger constituency of people who are not using the public schools and who may be inclined to say that um, it's no longer necessary for the government to subsidize education and control education to the degree that it has, and we can see uh, a freer, less regulated uh, education marketplace, both for public and private schools. You know, Dave just triggered one thought in me, and that is that two decades from now, it will be good if we actually got away from the idea of school choice and looked more at the idea of education choice, that wherever the children are, we'll try to, to get the services to them. But the only way you can do that is through the kind of dynamic market that, that we're looking at. Well, those are good lessons. And unfortunately, I hear the bell, so I guess we have to dismiss this class until the next time. Thank you both for being here. David Salisbury, Director of Cato Center for Educational Freedom, and Casey Lartigue, a former policy analyst at the center and now senior partner with Fight for Children, have collaborated on a brand new book, hot off the presses and available online at catostore.org. It's titled Educational Freedom.